welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Monster Week of Cases Starting off with a monster that has broken my heart, as monsters are apt to do. At least I'm getting good feedback from the UNNJ interview with Ed and Liz. Check it out if you need an uplift after this week's cases. But don't worry, actually, there are a bunch of decisions this week friendly to non-citizens. But not the first one. Nine cases to go through, and starting off with the Wise Nine. First up, you probably already know, is Patel v. Garland, published by the Supreme Court on May 16th, 2022. Well, everybody, we lost Patel. KKTP and Wilmer Hale are devastated, and we promised that we did the best we could. Four justices agreed. The following summary was graciously provided in collaboration with KKTP partner Ed Ramos, who has been intimately involved in the case since the en banc stage. Justice Barrett authored this consequential decision. And it's one of the more complicated issues that many of us have ever come across, so please bear with me. The case is about jurisdiction. The statute at issue says that, quote, no court shall have jurisdiction to review any judgment regarding the granting of relief, end quote, referring then to five specific immigration statutes that authorize specific forms of relief. And those specific forms of relief are 212H and 212I waivers, LPR and non-LPR cancellation of removal, both forms of voluntary departure, and adjustment of status. So really, while it's five statutes, it's actually seven forms of relief. But I'll refer to it as five because the jurisdictional bar refers to only five statutes. There are three possible interpretations of this statute. Our position was the narrowest. The statute bars review only of the final decision whether to grant or deny discretionary relief. The statute does not bar any aspect of the threshold decisions regarding whether someone qualifies for relief. For example, the factual question of whether someone was admitted for purposes of adjustment of status. 
the Solicitor General's position for the government was similar to ours. The government argued that the statute bars only review of discretionary decisions. That includes some second-step decisions like whether to grant or deny relief, plus some discretionary threshold eligibility decisions. Like, for example, questions regarding the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Then there was the 11th Circuit en banc majority's position, defended by court-appointed amicus counsel. According to them, there is no judicial review of any decision made at any part of adjudicating a denial of one of the five listed forms of relief. A bit of background, in Mr. Patel's case, the immigration judge denied adjustment of status because the IJ found Mr. Patel inadmissible. Specifically, he was found to have made a false claim to U.S. citizenship when he checked the U.S. citizen box on a Georgia driver's license application. That implicates the devastating and generally unwaivable inadmissibility bar at INA Section 212A6CII. Mr. Patel argued that he was not actually inadmissible because he checked that box inadvertently. And that might have been a cognizable argument under the BIA's framework, as described in Matter of Richmond. But the IJ didn't believe Mr. Patel and didn't believe that he checked the box inadvertently, and he found Mr. Patel's testimony on that point not credible. For more on the background of all of this and for the 11th Circuit's reasoning, check out the special episode with Ed last year and episode 17 of the podcast. Under either the government's interpretation or Mr. Patel's interpretation of the statute, the IJ and the BIA's finding, that is, whether Mr. Patel meant to check a box and is actually inadmissible, would be reviewable by a federal court. The government acknowledged that this is not a discretionary decision, and under Mr. Patel's interpretation, the decision is reviewable because it concerns threshold eligibility for relief, not that final, second-step decision of whether to actually grant relief as a matter of discretion. However, Justice Barrett, writing for the five-member majority, agreed with the 11th Circuit's en banc majority's interpretation defended by the Supreme Court-appointed amicus counsel. Justice Barrett believes that the phrase, quote, any judgment regarding the granting of relief, end quote, applies to bar review of factual findings made at any point in the adjudication of any of the five listed forms of relief. Review of Mr. Patel's credibility was also therefore barred. As some of the reasons why, the majority explained that both the words any and regarding in the jurisdiction statute indicate an expansive reach. The majority also relied on the Jurisdictional Savings Clause, INA Section 242A2D. Congress added that provision after the addition of the statute at issue here, 242A2BI's, enactment. And A2D restores review of legal and constitutional claims. According to Justice Barrett, the main category for which review remains barred is questions of fact. Put another way, Congress restored jurisdiction of certain issues after the Supreme Court's St. Cyr decision, but did not restore review of questions of fact. The Supreme Court majority, which did not include Justice Gorsuch, also believed that the textual arguments advanced by Mr. Patel and the Solicitor General, quote, read like elaborate efforts to avoid the most natural reading of the text, end quote. Justice Gorsuch, writing for a four-justice dissent, largely agreed with Mr. Patel. He and us have a very different interpretation of what, quote, regarding the granting of relief, end quote, means. 
As the dissent sees it, the phrase refers only to the second-step decision, whether to grant relief in the exercise of discretion. There's more to it, but that's the gist of it. But there is certainly much more to litigate for immigration practitioners everywhere. Here are Eddie and I's additional thoughts. Let me start out with the bad just to get it out of the way. There is definitely a chance that this decision and the court's reading of the various jurisdiction-stripping provisions preclude district court challenges to all adverse USCIS adjustment of status decisions. I wish I didn't have to say that sentence. And if that's the case, it may permit a situation whereby a non-citizen with a USCIS denial has no review if DHS decides not to place them in removal proceedings. To get into the weeds on this, it's because INA Section 242A2D restores review for legal and constitutional claims, but only where they are, quote, raised upon a petition for review filed with an appropriate court of appeals, end quote. Nothing about district court there. The Supreme Court majority seems to have no problem with this, quote, foreclosing judicial review unless and until removal proceedings are initiated would be consistent with Congress's choice to reduce procedural protections in the context of discretionary relief, end quote. I'm speechless. Although obviously I'm not because I'm still speaking. The important question for petitions for review is what is the effect of this decision on mixed questions of law and fact? While I can't say for sure, Footnote 3 in Justice Gorsuch's dissent provides authority to argue that this decision does not undermine a circuit's ability to review such mixed issues, even if tethered to the five forms of relief, because at base, they are legal in nature. I have it on first-hand knowledge that Ira Kurzban does not think such questions precluded, and as a legal matter per my terms of employment, that's binding upon me. I also happen to agree, Guerrero Las Prias was issued only two terms ago, and this decision doesn't seem to touch that decision. Turn your factual challenges into legal ones. Next, and for better or for worse, none of this has any effect on the inadmissibility ground for false claims to citizenship or upon matter of Richmond, other than making that finding sometimes unreviewable. Matter of Richmond's materiality requirement remains vacated in the 11th Circuit, but nowhere else. A circuit split that the Supreme Court declined to resolve here. And again, check out episode 17 for more on that. For every other circuit besides the 11th Circuit, here's the Supreme Court stating the law. Quote, the BIA has interpreted this provision to apply when a non-citizen, one, makes a false representation of citizenship, two, that is material to a purpose or benefit under the law, and three, with the subjective intent of obtaining that purpose or benefit. End quote. Finally, Justice Gorsuch noted that the new majority holding, quote, is such an unlikely assertion of raw administrative power that not even the agency that allegedly erred, nor any other arm of the executive branch, endorses it. Today's majority acts on its own to shield the government from the embarrassment of having to correct even its most obvious errors, end quote. Justice Gorsuch concludes that, quote, it is a conclusion that turns an agency once accountable to the rule of law into an authority unto itself. Perhaps some would welcome a world like that, but it is hardly the world Congress ordained, end quote. And that is Patel v. Garland. Okay. 
Next is St. Ford v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on May 16, 2022. This case is about ineffective assistance of counsel, which can only mean one thing. Mr. St. Ford is from Haiti, where he, quote, became involved in Haitian national politics in 2012 by joining the opposition political party Platform Petit de Sein, or PPD. He believed the ruling political party in Haiti, the Haitian Tetkaye Party, PHTK, and its then-leader, President Joseph Martelli, were corrupt and involved in human rights abuses, end quote. From 2013 to 2014, he received anonymous telephone calls threatening to make him a victim if he didn't leave PPD and didn't join PHTK. In July 2014, armed men shot up his home, set fire to it, and burned it down. He wasn't home, but he reported it to police. Investigators in Haiti confirmed that the incident indeed occurred, and they interviewed witnesses, but they never found out who did it. A neighbor advised Mr. St. Ford to leave the area. He fled a few weeks later, going to the Dominican Republic, and then Brazil. When he made it to the United States, he applied for asylum and related relief in removal proceedings. He hired an attorney who conceded removability and filed an asylum application. After that, though, the two had, quote, little contact, end quote. And according to Mr. St. Ford, the attorney never reviewed the asylum application with him or prepared him for his merits hearing. What we do know for sure from the record is that the, quote, attorney provided scant documentary evidence to support Mr. St. Ford's application, end quote. The attorney didn't submit anything to show that the PPD or PHTK even existed, other than Mr. St. Ford's PPD membership card. The IJ denied relief largely for this reason, even though the IJ found Mr. St. Ford credible. New counsel came on for appeal and additionally filed a motion to reopen and remand based on ineffective assistance of counsel for the reasons that I just alluded to. The BIA denied that motion and dismissed the appeal. As to the motion specifically, the BIA relied on the fact that former counsel denied Mr. St. Ford's ineffective assistance allegations when presented with them, and in any event, that Mr. St. Ford hadn't established that he suffered prejudice as a result of any ineffective assistance. Which to me is a bit surprising. And it surprised the Third Circuit too. The Third Circuit applies a quote, two-part test to evaluate error and prejudice. One, would competent counsel have acted otherwise? And if so, two, whether the non-citizen was prejudiced by counsel's performance. End quote. If so, you've met the ineffective assistance of counsel requirement. As with many circuits, the second prejudice prong, quote, requires the non-citizen to demonstrate that there was a reasonable probability that the IJ would not have entered an order of removal absent counsel's errors, end quote. This equates merely to a significant possibility. The non-citizen doesn't need to show that he definitely would have won with competent counsel, which quite frankly would be an impossible task. It looks like the Third Circuit was interested in prejudice here, believing that the BIA had, quote, wisely, end quote, assumed that indeed Mr. St. Ford's prior counsel was ineffective. And the reason that the Third Circuit believed the BIA wise to so assume was because in the Third Circuit, a, quote, attorney's failure to produce easily available evidence supporting a claim for immigration relief falls below the constitutionally required standard of performance, end quote. That's exactly what the prior attorney failed to do here. All of that political information was available online, which is easily available according to the court. 
The fact that the former attorney denied the allegations aren't worth much because, quote, facts presented in the motion to reopen are accepted as true unless inherently unbelievable, end quote. That's a juicy quote for use in a litany of contexts, no? As to prejudice, often the difficult part for these motions, Mr. St. Ford met it, and so the BIA erred. Mr. St. Ford produced a whole heap of easily accessible corroborating evidence in his motion, core to his claim, which the BIA, quote, never mentioned, end quote. The BIA appears to have wanted Mr. St. Ford to show that he'd have actually won his case with this new evidence, but that's not the standard. Quote, constitutionally adequate counsel would have introduced this readily available evidence, end quote. Not only that, but the BIA had a duty to address, as Mr. St. Ford argued, whether conditions had changed since his merits hearing such that he should be able to apply for asylum again based on materially changed country conditions. That would also excuse his failure to meet his one-year filing deadline below. And Mr. St. Ford's got an argument. President Moyes, for example, was assassinated last year, and many believe Haiti is in a state of increased chaos. The BIA appears not to have really considered any of this, so it aired here too. Case remanded directly to the IJ for a new hearing. Congratulations, Robert A. Painter, for petitioner. And I'll keep going. The Third Circuit is taking representation quite seriously in this decision. I'm thinking about all those decisions I sometimes review where judges are wondering about the Sixth Amendment's effect in immigration court, but the Third Circuit starts off with a bang on this one, stating that, quote, the need for effective assistance of counsel applies in immigration law just as it does in criminal law, end quote. And yes, it does, after Patel, more than ever, because you might not get a shot in federal court if you lose before the agency. And that right to counsel, by the way, according to the Third Circuit, stems from the Fifth Amendment and, quote, immigration laws, end quote. Judge Ambrose in concurrence would go even farther, quote, Former counsel was not the only one who made significant missteps at the hearing. The immigration judge did as well, end quote, by disregarding Mr. St. Ford's credible testimony, which can itself meet a non-citizen's asylum burden. Plus, quote, Congress has recognized that corroborating evidence may not always be available to a refugee, end quote, and it seems that the IJ never inquired into whether corroborating evidence was reasonably available, and did not, quote, tell him what corroboration she needed or give him a chance to present that evidence, end quote. Things to remember. And that is St. Ford, the Attorney General of the U.S., Sticking with the Third Circuit, we have Argeta Oriana, the Attorney General of the U.S., published on May 20th, 2022. This is a bit of a unique one about BIA procedures, and I'm going to get through it quick. As appellate immigration attorneys know, quote, the BIA gives petitioners a choice. You need not file a brief supporting your appeal, but if you say you will and you do not, your challenge might be dismissed, end quote. This case is about what happens when you check the box but don't then submit the brief. Mr. Argeta Oriana is from El Salvador and lost an asylum case in immigration court. Represented by counsel, he checked the box in the EOIR 26 Notice of Appeal form saying that he'd file a brief with the BIA once the BIA set a briefing schedule. It seems that Mr. Argeta Oriana may have lost his attorney in the interim. Unclear. 
If he didn't, this whole decision may be a precursor to an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And actually, a footnote indicates that this may very well be the case. Anyway, when the BIA eventually issued a briefing schedule, Ms. Argueta Oriana didn't file anything. So the BIA dismissed his appeal. He petitioned for review to the Third Circuit without an attorney. Now importantly, the regulations permit the BIA to do this, that is, dismiss an appeal for failure to file a brief when you check the box. But then again, the regulations are written by the Department of Justice itself, meaning for all intents and purposes that the BIA's authority is coming from itself. Which again is permitted under administrative law in many circumstances. Ms. Argueta Oriana, through amicus counsel, put up a fight and argue that the regulation at issue conflicts with another regulation and therefore shouldn't be followed. But the Third Circuit didn't see a conflict. Nor did the Third Circuit see a due process violation in dismissing a non-citizen's appeal under such circumstances. Accordingly, the Third Circuit upheld the BIA's dismissal of Mr. Argueta Oriana's appeal, and along the way, upheld the legitimacy of the regulation at issue, 8 CFR section 1003.1, D2I, E. And that is Argueta Oriana, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next is Ali V. Garland, published by the First Circuit on May 5th, 2022. As the date reflects, this decision was actually published two weeks ago. It would appear that the First Circuit had a glitch because the court's website hadn't been showing any decisions for two weeks, but on Thursday, 20 of them all appeared at once. Ah, the life of a court watcher. Let's do it. This is a hefty decision about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Ali is from Somalia and was brought to the U.S. as a nine-year-old child in 2000. He received asylum shortly thereafter. It appears that Mr. Ali never obtained his green card or naturalized as he definitely should have, and in 2020, was placed in removal proceedings based on cocaine trafficking and firearm offenses, among others. He was found removable, applied for asylum, and was deemed ineligible for everything except cat deferral. The BIA affirmed, and the First Circuit denied Mr. Ali's motion for a stay of his removal to Somalia, pending resolution of his petition for review. The U.S. government, however, did not remove Mr. Ali to Somalia before the First Circuit decided his case, which, as we'll see, was a good decision. Before the First Circuit, Mr. Ali did not challenge the IJ's particularly serious crime finding, something that I'll just stop to note may have had some legs in the First Circuit, based on, if I'm remembering correctly, the serious shade thrown on Matter of YL by the First Circuit in the Episode 82 case de Cavallo v. Garland. But no, no. This case is simply about the denial of cat deferral, the last possible line of defense for non-citizens. And after the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision, circuits can and do review fact-finding related to the denial of cat protection, even if, after Patel, they cannot do so for the five listed forms of relief in that jurisdiction-stripping statute. See how this all gets very confusing very quickly? Mr. Ali claimed to fear three entities in Somalia. First, Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group that has exercised power in Somalia for years. The First Circuit affirmed the IJ and the BIA's denial of cat protection here, agreeing that the record showed that whatever the danger, quote, the government of Somalia does not condone, and is in fact, in armed conflict with Al-Shabaab, end quote. 
The Convention Against Torture requires more than unwillingness or inability to protect. It requires government acquiescence or condoning to torture, or at a minimum, willful blindness. The same rationale, however, did not go for Mr. Ali's two other grounds of challenging the BIA's decision, his fear of, quote, members of private militias and individuals who are armed criminals, end quote, and from, quote, security force or the government of Somalia, end quote. It was definitely a good thing that Mr. Ali had an expert to testify and develop this evidence. For example, the expert testified that Mr. Ali, quote, would face that threat from those actors due to his appearance and other characteristics that marked him as a westernized criminal deportee, end quote, and that he'd absolutely get no help from the government. The expert also provided a detailed affidavit, and additionally, said the expert, there was a danger from security forces themselves against Mr. Ali. The error here was that the IJ and the BIA really didn't discuss any of this testimony or evidence. Everyone pretty much just focused on the Al-Shabaab stuff. That's a problem because the CAT regulations require IJs to consider all evidence of potential torture in totality. So if an IJ or the BIA misses something established by the record, well, there's cause for a potential remand. Because how can one consider something in totality if it doesn't consider everything? The BIA appears to have tried to clean up the IJ's decision a bit, but the First Circuit made pretty clear that the BIA can't clean up a finding that wasn't made in the first place. So it's all going back to the BIA, and seemingly the IJ, for consideration of those other sources of torture to Mr. Ali. Congratulations Edgar L. Fankbonner and Susan B. Church for Petitioner. And it's got me thinking... The First Circuit dismissed a somewhat novel argument that Mr. Ali made because it was not developed. That is, quote, that al-Shabaab can be properly understood to constitute a government actor in certain areas, end quote, of Somalia. That's very important, because if al-Shabaab is considered the government rather than merely a private actor, Mr. Ali wouldn't need to show that the actual Somali government condoned or acquiesced to the torture. Because if al-Shabaab is considered the government, Mr. Ali fears, for all intents and purposes, the government itself. Some practitioners make arguments similar with MS-13 in El Salvador, and other entities, of course, in other countries. And I bet that with the right country condition evidence to prove it, someone will bite on this clever argument eventually. If they haven't already. And that is Ali V. Garland. Let's head on over to the Ninth Circuit. Fan v. Garland, published on May 18th, 2022. This case is primarily about asylum and standards of review. Judge Graber authored the opinion, and then concurred with herself, as did Judge Collins separately, whereby Judge Chose Groves, sitting by designation, concurred and dissented in part. Awesome. Mr. Fan is from Cameroon, specifically the English-speaking region in this French-majority-speaking country. Quote, in October 2016, activists in the English-speaking region campaigned to expand the use of the English language in schools and courtrooms. The campaign turned violent and, when separatist fighters declared the English-speaking region's independence, the violence escalated into an ongoing war with the government of Cameroon. End quote. What a world we've created. Mr. Fon wasn't one of the people fighting and instead worked at a local hospital. Gonna just read it in full. Quote, in December 2018, the hospital treated a patient who Mr. Fon suspected was a separatist fighter. 
While Mr. Fon tended to the wounds, four soldiers from the Cameroonian military bashed into the ward and seized the patient. Two soldiers took the patient away. The remaining two soldiers shouted at Mr. Fon and threatened to kill him if they caught him treating separatist fighters again. They then punched Mr. Fon and attacked him with a knife, leaving him with a three-inch scar on his left side. End quote. Mr. Fon continued to treat separatist fighters at his home until Cameroonian soldiers ransacked his house looking for him while he was away. He fled and then came to the U.S. where he applied for asylum and related relief. And I.J. found Mr. Fon credible, but determined that he hadn't actually suffered past persecution on account of a protected ground, and that he didn't have a well-founded fear on account of a protected ground, notwithstanding the continued war in Cameroon. The BIA affirmed, and the Ninth Circuit reversed. Here's what the IJ and the BIA did wrong, according to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit listed seven non-exhaustive factors that would support a past persecution finding in its 2021 decision, Sharma v. Garland, episode 69. Thanks, Liz. And three of those important factors are present here, quote, physical injury, specific threats, and evidence of the country's political and societal turmoil, end quote. And for example, what happened to Mr. Fon is even worse or at least similar enough to what happened to Mr. Adin in Somalia in Adin v. Wilkinson, where the Ninth Circuit also made a past persecution finding. Episode 45 of the pod. A nice litigation strategy to remember practitioners compare the facts of your case to a similar enough case where the circuit has already found past persecution. And here's that great quote from Adin incorporated here, quote, what matters in assessing the sufficiency of the threat to establish persecution is whether the group making the threat has the will or the ability to carry it out, not whether it is, in fact, carried out, End quote. Indeed, if the reverse were true, many of these petitioners could only obtain asylum if they were dead. And in any event here, right, Mr. Fon was stabbed with that knife and beaten by the military. Turning then to Nexus whether the persecution Mr. Fon suffered or feared was on account of a protected ground, the Ninth Circuit held that the IJ erred for two reasons. First, and despite finding him credible, the IJ wanted corroborating declarations from Mr. Fon's co-workers and family in Cameroon to establish that the soldiers were targeting him because he was an Anglophone perceived to be working with opposition. But, quote, the IJ could not rely on the absence of corroborative evidence to reject a finding of nexus without having given Mr. Fon advance notice of what additional evidence was required and an opportunity to produce it or to explain why it was not available, end quote. That's Ren V. Holder in the Ninth Circuit, by the way. As to the second reason, the IJ believed Mr. Fon had not satisfactorily testified to what happened to his similarly situated co-worker in Cameroon. But to the Ninth Circuit, that isn't really relevant to Nexus, and in any event, it appears that it suffers from the same analytical Renby Holder corroboration flaw. Case remanded. Congratulations, Danielle Beach Oswald, for petitioner. All of that concurring and dissenting that I mentioned at the top naturally calls for just a little bit more. Judge Graber concurred with herself to note that there is a circuit split regarding what standard of review to apply when the courts review whether agreed-upon facts meet the legal definition of past persecution. And while asylum wasn't touched in Patel because it's not one of the five listed grounds of relief, the larger issue of mixed questions of law and fact and standards of review seems to be the giant avenue for review untouched by Patel. Judge Graber seems to believe that in many cases, it's a mixed question of law and fact, 
but that also in many cases, substantial evidence review should apply. In other cases, Judge Graber and especially Judge Collins believe that actually, the court should be applying de novo review, which would be huge for non-citizens. Judge Graber, like Judge Collins, would like the Supreme Court to step in and resolve this dispute. As I personally am still recovering from Patel PTSD, I do not share Judge Graber's wish at this time. Finally, I'm just going to read this footnote in full, as it illustrates how sometimes things get lost in the shuffle and all the cold paper records pending before the BIA. Quote, The BIA commented that Mr. Fon characterized the soldiers' threats as a joke. The BIA clearly misread Mr. Fon's testimony. Mr. Fon testified in both his oral and written testimony that the soldiers made a joke about me playing Jesus Christ by trying to save the patient. The joke was not the threat made by the soldier. Rather, the soldier mocked Mr. Fon as purportedly thinking that he was a messianic figure. End quote. And that is Fon V. Garland. Next is Olea Serafina v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on May 19th, 2022. Taking a break from asylum. This case is about aggravated felony crimes of violence. And it's another decision, I believe, from the same panel as the Fon case that I just discussed. Ms. Olea is from Mexico and has lived in the U.S. since 1994 without authorization. When placed in removal proceedings, she applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B. She has three U.S. citizen children and claims that they will suffer the requisite hardship if she is removed to Mexico. She also initially told the immigration judge, pro se, without an attorney, that she had never been convicted of a crime and that she had never been in immigration court proceedings before. However, as it turns out, neither of those things were true. She was granted voluntary departure by an IJ in 1995, and she had a felony conviction. The IJ inquired into her asylum eligibility when the IJ found out about all that and provided her opportunities to apply for asylum. In addition to the many continuances to obtain counsel and to pursue a U-visa, it seems like the IJ did a lot to assist Ms. Olea, at least based on this decision. At the final hearing, and after many continuances totaling four years, the IJ denied a further continuance and denied non-LPR cancellation of removal, finding that Ms. Olea's conviction for corporal injury upon a child in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 273-DA rendered her statutorily ineligible for that relief. Seemingly with the assistance of counsel, Ms. Olea appealed, and the BIA dismissed the appeal. The Ninth Circuit upheld the BIA. Namely, it held that Cal Penal Code Section 273-DA is an aggravated felony crime of violence, making Ms. Olea ineligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal. And while none of the circuits are citing to Patel this week, because obviously Patel just came out, it would seem to me that the question presented here is still reviewable even after Patel, because it's a question of law that circuits retain authority to review, that is, do the elements of the California statute meet the definition of an aggravated felony crime of violence? Let's hope I'm right. Anyway, it was definitely reviewed here, and before we get to the elements, this aggravated felony, INA Section 11843F, requires that the conviction have a term of imprisonment of at least one year to qualify as an aggravated felony. Ms. Olea was sentenced to only probation, but with, quote, a condition of her probation, a jail term of 365 days, end quote. 
Misalea never served any of it in prison, and so argued that it didn't meet the statutory definition of a term of imprisonment, thereby making the conviction not an aggravated felony, even if it matched the definition. Problem is that the Ninth Circuit held otherwise in the 2016 decision Hernandez v. Lynch. Plus, the definition of a term of imprisonment at INA Section 101-848-B covers stuff beyond actual physical incarceration. So then, on to the elements of the criminal offense. Do they match the crime of violence definition at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, as incorporated by INA Section 101-A43-F? That is the question. Specifically here, does the crime in all cases require violent force, as the Supreme Court has defined that term? That's essentially the issue similar to that addressed by the BIA two weeks ago in Matter of Dang. Well, the criminal statute imposes criminal punishment on, quote, any person who willfully inflicts upon a child any cruel or inhumane corporal punishment or an injury resulting in a traumatic condition, end quote. The Ninth Circuit has thrice held that a very similar California statute, Section 723.5a, is an aggravated felony. So... Not so fast, said Miss Olea, because that statute, unlike the one at issue here, requires the willful infliction of an injury resulting in a traumatic condition. Miss Olea's statute does cover that, but it also covers other stuff as well, namely the mere cruel or inhumane corporal punishment. The statute appears not to even require an injury, so said Miss Elia. So how can it require violent force? Unfortunately for Miss Elia, that's not how California state courts have applied the statute. Quote, California courts have consistently held that a traumatic condition is a required element of any violation of Section 273DA, end quote, even though the statutory text has changed a bit over the years. Such an analysis is pretty fatal to a categorical approach argument such as Miss Olea's, and the jury instructions support this reading of the statute. would like to stop and note that in conducting this pseudo-divisibility analysis, the Ninth Circuit started off by analyzing 1961, 1976, and 2003 California state case law. Indeed, the Ninth Circuit notes the, quote, California court's binding determination of the elements of a violation of Section 273DA, end quote. The Ninth Circuit did all of this, notwithstanding the somewhat old, and certainly pre-Mathis, nature of the state case law decisions that it was relying upon. Under those decisions and the statute, the term traumatic condition has been defined as a, quote, wound or other abnormal bodily condition, resulting from the application of some external force, end quote. So that's almost certainly going to equate to violent force, and it does here. The statute also requires a willful mental state, which also will satisfy the crime of violence definition. Having found Ms. Olea ineligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal, the Ninth Circuit rejected her due process challenge. It held that, quote, the IJ acted well within her discretion in following through with the proceedings and rendering a decision, end quote, and denying a final continuance, as, quote, the IJ generously offered Miss Oliea eight continuances to allow her to locate counsel to prepare her application and to await the outcome of her U visa applications, end quote. The IJ also sufficiently developed the record, including inquiring into whether Miss Oliea would apply for or qualify for asylum. So said the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit dismissed Ms. Oliea's other arguments and affirmed the BIA. And that is Oliea Serafina v. Garland. 
Moving on to the Fifth Circuit and the week that does not quit. Nikenglafak v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 18th, 2022. This is another decision on Cameroon, and it's a somewhat rare asylum remand from the Fifth. Something is definitely credibly afoot in Cameroon. Perhaps that's why DHS recently designated the country with TPS. Mr. Ken Glafak is from Cameroon and testified that he was barred from obtaining post-high school education because he spoke English rather than French. Seemingly unhappy with his then-forced lot as a taxi driver, he became a member of the Southern Cameroon National Council, or SCNC, a Cameroonian political party. He recruited members and advocated for secession from Cameroon. In January 2017, he was arrested during an SCNC meeting, held at a police station for seven days, and then released. When arrested, quote, police forced him to stand with his arms over his head and jump like a frog for 30 minutes, end quote. He was beaten at the police station every morning, and he was questioned and refused food and water for seven days. He was forced to sign a document swearing to renounce the SCNC. He did not actually do so, and he was captured at another meeting a month later. As he was trying to escape that capture, he was beaten and kicked, and he had his shoulder dislocated. He was beaten with guns until he lost consciousness. Hospitals wouldn't admit him, so his family took him to one an hour away, quote, where he remained for 45 days. He suffered swelling, bruising blood clots on his eyes, and restricted arm movements due to his shoulder injury, end quote. His father was shot during a struggle with Cameroonian soldiers over a hunting rifle in 2017. He lived in relative hiding for about a year with the knowledge that there was an outstanding arrest warrant for him. That is until police caught him passing out flyers urging protest in 2018, resulting in a 15-minute car chase using his cab. Mr. Dekenglafak, quote, wrecked his taxi into some water near a banana plantation, end quote. Police later burned the cab, and Mr. Nkenglafak fled to Nigeria. But apparently Nigerian police were cooperating with Cameroonian police regarding the SCNC, so he fled to the U.S., having to first serendipitously get back into Cameroon, fly to Rwanda, and then travel to South Africa, and then Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, before almost surely being smuggled up through pretty much all of Central America. He applied for asylum at the border. His cousin told him that the military is still looking for him and that they burned down his family home recently. Don't tell me we don't tell interesting stories on the podcast. During DHS cross-examination and questioning by the immigration judge, some additional facts were elicited. The IJ ultimately did not believe Mr. Nikenglafak, issuing an adverse credibility finding, in part due to some alleged inconsistencies between his testimony and statements to CBP at the U.S. border when he first arrived. The BIA affirmed by a divided three-judge panel. The Fifth Circuit denied Mr. Nkenglafak a stay of removal before the Biden administration granted TPS for Cameroon. And so, unless Mr. Nkenglafak has again escaped Cameroon, he is currently sitting in Cameroon. It's all a big problem because DHS has to bring him back. The Fifth Circuit vacated the IJ and BIA's credibility finding. And I mean, first, and it's kind of incredible, that CBP Incredible Fear interview that the IJ relied upon to find Mr. Nkenglafak not credible were never submitted into the record or even admitted to by Mr. Nkenglafak. So how could the IJ rely upon them to find him not credible? So said the Fifth Circuit. Not only that, but how about this, Fifth Circuit practitioners, quote, 
This court has approved, but not required, that petitioners should be given the opportunity to explain any non-obvious discrepancies that may bear on their credibility, end quote. Mr. Neclanglefak wasn't provided the opportunity to explain any apparent inconsistency or dispute the records, much less, quote, cross-examine the individuals who prepared the interview summaries, end quote. Let's go fifth. And it appears that his in-court testimony was not internally inconsistent. So really, it's all about these CBP records, which were not even submitted, into the record. It doesn't matter that Mr. Nikenglafak's former counsel never requested that the CBP and Credible Fear interview notes be made part of the record because, quote, we fail to understand why Mr. Nikenglafak's counsel should have introduced these government summaries into the record to anticipate and explain later perceived inconsistencies when they were never identified, referenced, or discussed, end quote. Let's go fifth! Wish I knew who circuit counsel was. Well done. Case remanded. I hope Mr. Nkenglafak is okay. And that is Nkenglafak v. Garland. Next up is Vasquez de Martinez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 16th, 2022. This case is about the non-citizen's attorney, which means lots of things went wrong. Ms. Vasquez de Martinez and her child fled El Salvador and asked for asylum in the U.S. They did not succeed before the IJ and the BIA, and they obtained counsel to then petition for review those decisions to the Fifth Circuit. Counsel's opening brief was due before the 5th in January, but counsel requested and received a 30-day extension. Two days before that deadline in February, counsel asked for another extension, premised it seems largely on medical conditions that his parents suffered from, and his status as their primary caregiver. The Fifth Circuit granted another extension through late March, but advised that it would be the last. Quote, Council must have thought we were bluffing, because two days before the March deadline, he asked for one final month-long extension, arguing that he was suffering from a proverbial perfect storm, end quote, in personal and professional setbacks. And the Fifth Circuit relented, giving the attorney another extension of his deadline, this time until late April. But in late April, counsel did not file a brief, but instead moved to dismiss the petition five days before the brief was due, reserving the right to reinstate the matter under Fifth Circuit local rules. Then, before the Fifth Circuit ruled on that, counsel moved to dismiss the mother's petition for review, but not her minor child's, because the mother had unfortunately passed away in the interim. Counsel asked the Fifth Circuit to remand for the child so he could apply for a different form of relief, including, it appears, based on the fact that the child now might be eligible for special immigrant juvenile status as the child has no parent to care for her. The Fifth Circuit denied these latest motions. First, the Fifth Circuit said, because counsel didn't provide any legal arguments in his motions in violation of Fifth Circuit local rules. Second, to the Fifth Circuit, it was not clear if it had a standard whereby to adjudicate the motions, because the federal rules of appellate procedure provide guidance for dismissing appeals. But this, however, as with all immigration cases almost, is a petition for review, not an appeal. That's a different thing. Even though the Fifth Circuit and pretty much all circuits have assumed that Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 42 applies to voluntary dismissals of petitions for review, the Fifth Circuit isn't so sure in this decision. 
Finally, even applying Rule 42, the Fifth Circuit would deny what is usually a pretty straightforward request because according to the court, quote, counsel gives no explanation for why giving up the daughter's petition for review without a fight is in her best interest, end quote. The Fifth Circuit did give counsel an extension to file his brief, though. He now has until May 27th. Unique case. And that is Vasquez de Martinez v. Garland. And so we come to the end. Ariela Ochoa v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on May 17th, 2022. Hope you're all still with me, because this is an important case primarily about deficient notices to appear and dismissal, and it's chock full of standards. Mr. Ariola entered the United States from Mexico without authorization over 25 years ago. He's never had legal status, but he does have two U.S. citizen children with his partner. His partner also has two children from a prior relationship that Mr. Ariola cares for, plus three grandchildren that he also cares for. It's a busy home. And quote, by all accounts, this is a close-knit family. End quote. Without Mr. Ariola, the family testified, they'd be devastated and they'd be evicted. That's because Mr. Ariola is in a, quote, rent-to-buy program, end quote. But if he's deported, they're going to lose the home and they can't pay the rent to boot. Mr. Ariola is scared of returning to Mexico. U.S. immigration law, however, doesn't really provide a path for Mr. Ariola to legalize his status in the U.S. That law changed in 1997, even if he was married to a U.S. citizen. Once placed in removal proceedings, he can apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B if he can show exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a U.S. citizen child or spouse or parent or LPR child, spouse, or parent. But that's about it, excluding some other unique circumstances like U-visas or T-visas or something like that. So that's what Mr. Ariola applied for once placed in proceedings, non-LPR cancellation of removal. The NTA lacked the date and time of his initial hearing. Three days before his final merits hearing in 2018, he moved to terminate his case. That's because the Supreme Court issued Pereira right before, and Mr. Ariola's attorney was on top of it. The IJ denied the motion, believing that the subsequent notices of hearing cured the defect in the NTA. We know now that they don't, but Nishavez was still two years away in 2018. Then, the IJ denied relief, finding that Mr. Ariola hadn't established the requisite hardship to his U.S. citizen children. Mr. Ariola appealed, and during appeal, one of his two daughters turned 21, meaning that she could no longer even be a qualifying relative for non-LPR cancellation of removal. The BIA affirmed the IJ. And the Seventh Circuit ruled against Mr. Ariola. First, it reaffirmed its prior, generally favorable precedent that while not jurisdictional, deficient NTAs implicate a mandatory claims processing rule, which in the Seventh Circuit must be timely raised. Quote, if so, then the proceedings must be dismissed for failure to comply with a mandatory claims processing rule, end quote. And that's without even requiring a showing of prejudice. If not timely raised in the 7th, the non-citizen can still get proceedings dismissed. Indeed, they, quote, must be dismissed, end quote, if, quote, the non-citizen provides an excuse for the delay, as well as show prejudice from the lack of prompt information about time, place, or both, end quote. Interesting. Loving the Seventh Circuit leading the way on this stuff. Mr. Ariella argued that he did timely raise the claims processing rule violation. Again, no prejudice showing required in the Seventh Circuit if he did. But what is timely? Well, 
the Seventh Circuit continues to play coy. Quote, No one would doubt that an objection made within a week of receiving the defective notice to appear is made in a timely way, just as no one would doubt that an objection that showed up for the first time in the Court of Appeals is too late. End quote. It appears that the Seventh Circuit was prepared to hold that the outer limit of timeliness would be, quote, the conclusion of proceedings before the immigration court, end quote, which would mean that Mr. Ariola would win here. But actually, the Seventh Circuit believes that whether an objection to an NTA is timely really comes down to a classic reasonableness inquiry, which, quote, calls for a holistic and circumstance-specific analysis of timeliness, end quote. The Seventh Circuit goes out of its way here not to create a bright-line rule, but does provide a non-exhaustive list of factors to consider. Pretty much an entire page's worth. So check it out. And honestly, a lot of them seem beneficial to non-citizens in a lot of cases on this issue. But they didn't win the day for Mr. Ariola here. For example, he waited a long time after being served with the NTA to object, and only did so right before his individual hearing. On the other hand, there are some factors supporting a timeliness finding, but ultimately, the Seventh Circuit believed his assertion untimely. Now, Mr. Ariola can still get his case dismissed, notwithstanding the untimely nature of his asserting the violation, if he can excuse his lateness and establish prejudice as a result of the violation, but the Seventh Circuit determined that he did not do so here. Unfortunately, the Seventh Circuit determined that he did not do so here. But how about this? not present in this case, but maybe in other cases, quote, not having access to counsel or translation services or being restricted in some other way could excuse a late objection, end quote. Plus, in this case, the Ninth Circuit didn't see prejudice. But again, get this. To my knowledge, it's the first quote in any of these cases on prejudice, so I will read it in full. Quote, there is no evidence that he went to the wrong place, had the wrong time, missed any hearings, had difficulty presenting witnesses or some other evidence, or encountered any other problem that the omission of this information in the notice might have caused. Prejudice in this situation does not have to be much, i.e., a petitioner need not go so far as to show that the IJ's ultimate decision would have been different absent the defect, but it must be something, end quote. I can work with that. With the case not dismissed, the Seventh Circuit turned to cancellation of removal and whether Mr. Ariola had established the requisite hardship, a finding that, if deemed factual, the Patel decision published the day before might preclude. But the Seventh Circuit deemed it a mixed question of law and fact that fell within the Supreme Court's Guerrero-Lasprilla decision, so it held that it could review the issue. What a lifeline, the day after Patel. The Seventh Circuit held that even after Patel, and even with non-LPR cancellation of removal, which is specifically delineated in that jurisdiction-stripping statute, the application of undisputed facts to law is reviewable. Now in candor, the Seventh Circuit didn't cite Patel, surely because that decision had only just been issued, but its holding remains tethered to Guerrero-Lasprilla, also, of course, issued by the Supreme Court. All of that being said, Mr. Ariola didn't show that the BIA erred in its application of law to facts. Mr. Ariola, quote, pleads that his family is especially close, but he does not point to anything more concrete as a hardship. It would require a change in the immigration laws to find that the kind of personal hardship on which Mr. Ariola is relying could serve to support cancellation of removal, end quote. So Mr. Ariola will be removed. I'll say this after reading this decision from the Seventh Circuit, clearly designed to elicit compassion. 
I feel for Mr. Ariola and his family, and I'm very sad for them. In his loss, he has created some important non-citizen-friendly law. I'm sure that is cold comfort, but it should be noted. And that is Ariola Ochoa v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.